This morning, I'd like to read to you Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, through chapter 3, verse 7. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This ends the reading of God's word. Lord, you've already been very kind to show up in a pronounced way today. I thank you, Lord, that you are present when we sense it, and even present when we don't. Lord, we don't want to be a people that put your presence or your activity in a little box called our own perception or our own wisdom. We love the fact that you are in so many ways not like us. You're, you're infinite. And we're finite. You're the creator. We're the creature. And I pray, Father, that as I seek to preach your word today, that you would help us with this particularly difficult issue of the presence of evil and the origin of sin. Lord, we want to heed the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth today and not be ignorant of Satan's devices. We want to be wise as to his devices. We want to be heads up. We, we don't want to be caught unaware. So Lord, I ask you for two things at the outset of this sermon. I pray one that you would help us to understand how sin works. Debunk the mystery. Remove the myth. Open our eyes to see the process of temptation. And secondly, Lord, I pray you would use that understanding to deliver us from every temptation to sin. We thank you for your promise, which Paul also spoke to the church in Corinth, that Every temptation that seizes us is common to man, and you are faithful, God. Very faithful. You're always faithful, and you will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, you will provide a way of escape that we might be able to stand up under it. Lord, we want to be a people that stand firm in the presence of temptation to sin. So equip us to do that. Not so that our lives can be more comfortable, but so that we might be more like you. And in becoming more like you, we might know the joy that is really joy. The joy of holiness. It's what we want. We believe you came to give it. We believe your spirit is present here right now to work it. Help us to listen and help us to respond. Amen. Amen. Friends, we live in a world that is filled with evil. I don't think I have to convince you of that. Sexual abuse, opioid epidemics, school shootings, racism, 
abortion, murder, bribery, adultery, genocide. I mean, if, if you ever read the, the news headlines in whatever form they come your way, print or otherwise, it, it's an exercise in being saturated with evil. And then, of course, there's all the less scandalous but, but no less serious expressions of, of wickedness, right? So impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, envy, drunkenness, slander, gossip, selfishness, arrogance, ingratitude, impatience, conceit, anxiety, and discontentment. And I just kind of ran out of breath. The, the list is endless. <laughs> And it's sobering. It's sobering. Have you ever wondered why there is so much evil in the world? Why why is there so much evil in the world? Plenty of people have asked that question. If if you're asking that question, you're not alone. You're not weird. That's a good question. And, And some have concluded that it's because there's no God in the world. That, that it's a dog-eat-dog universe. It's been that way from the very beginning and, and always will be. Some people think it's a lack of, of education, of, of economic opportunity, or, or other circumstantial factors. Well, friend, if you open your Bible, and if we listen to what God has to say to us in, in Genesis 3... We find an answer in Scripture that is radically different than those answers. If if you ask the Bible, why is there evil in the world? Tell me, Bible, (laughs) why is there evil in the world? The answer you will find emerging from every page is this. There is evil in the world because there are evil people in the world. Evil doesn't have an evolutionary origin or a a circumstantial origin. It has a very personal origin, and all of us are indicted. Uh, Listen to Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt There is none who does good, not even one. Okay, think about that. We're going to look at this verse for just a minute, okay? What what is the word of God telling us here, friends? Several things. It's telling us that, that evil is personal. So notice it's not just that there is no good. It's that the children of man, you and me, have failed to do good. It's personal. Evil is also Godward. Okay, all that God is, is good. All that God is not, is evil. Thus, to seek after him, to follow him, is to do what's good. To fail to seek after him, to fail to follow him, is, is to do evil. So evil is personal, evil is Godward. It's also internal. It's, it's not just something that we, we do as human beings that are basically good. You know, we hear that a lot, but it's not true. Why do I say that? Because it's who we are. Verse 3 doesn't just say, in Psalm 14, there is no one who does good. It says what? Together they have become corrupt. It's not just a matter of our activity. Evil touches, it corrupts the core of our identity. So it's personal, it's Godward, it's, etern- it's internal. It's also volitional or, or willful. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not just something that happens to us, though it does, or something that we stumble into, though we do. I mean, why is it that there is no one who does good? Why is it that together we have become corrupt? Verse 3, what does it say? It's because we have what? All turned aside. We've turned aside. In other words, every one of us has made a willful, voluntary choice to turn away from what God says is good and right and to turn toward what we think and say is good and right. 
We, we have to remember those things when we come into Genesis 3. We, we have to keep the whole Bible in view, read this in context, and remember that, that evil is personal, it's Godward, it's internal, and it's willful, it's volitional. We choose to do evil. But you know, the world wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. Evil, evil has a beginning. It has, it has an origin. There is no eternal dark side to the force. Star Wars is not right. Okay, the beginning of evil, seen here in Genesis 3, represented an intrusion into God's world that was originally what? What does he say about his world? Help me out. Good. Nope, not good enough. Very good. That's right. Very good. It's not just good, it's very good. And, and in the passage that we looked at last Sunday, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, look at verse 25. This picture of paradise ended with a, a remarkable statement, these incredible words, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, that, that's not just a verse that's supposed to make all the middle school students chuckle. <laughs> okay, that's very significant. Very significant. We, we, we do not want to read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 apart from Genesis 2, 25. And here's why. There was no need to hide because there was nothing to hide. Think about that. There was no need for them to hide because there was nothing to hide. For the first man and woman, that was true in a physical sense. A physical sense. So both of them had, had been perfectly formed and fashioned in a physical sense by God, their creator. But it was also true in a spiritual sense. So, so both of them enjoyed unbroken fellowship, intimacy of relationship with God in paradise. So we, we summarized that a few weeks ago as what? What's that look like? That means being God's people in God's place under God's rule. That was paradise. But it didn't take long for them to disobey God's word and forfeit his blessing. I mean, what's so humbling is that they, they didn't even make it a full chapter. In Genesis 2.25, you have Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. In Genesis 3.7, you have Adam and Eve naked and utterly ashamed. And it's, it's that progression, friends, the progression from point A to point B that I want us to focus on this morning. It, it's a really sad story. Okay, it's, it's a devastating story. It's not a story with a happy ending. It's not the kind of movie that most of us like to watch. At least it doesn't have a happy ending initially. But I think this story is exceedingly helpful. And here's why. Not only because it's historical, but because it's timeless. It's because resisting temptation to sin starts with understanding the pattern of sin. If, if you're going to resist temptation to sin... You've got to understand the pattern of sin. The pattern of temptation that Adam and Eve succumbed to in the garden is the exact same pattern of temptation that we succumb to today. Okay, there's two things. There's nothing they did here that you and I would not do. And there's nothing they did here that you and I don't continue to do. We want to learn from that. We want to learn from that. So, so don't get me wrong here, okay? I'm not saying that if you just understand the pattern of temptation, you'll be freed from all temptation. Okay? Being delivered from temptation to sin requires a lot more than just understanding the pattern of sin. It requires a Savior. It requires Jesus. All right? And, and he's present here, but he's going to show up in an even bigger way next Sunday in the second half of chapter 3. But I'll warn you, you will never escape temptation to sin if you never stop to understand the pattern of sin. Being delivered from sin requires more than understanding, 
but never less than understanding. So let's, let's follow this story and work to understand the pattern here. What's, what's the pattern? Look at verse 1. This, this scene opens on a pretty ominous note. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's one of those verses that we tend to just, yeah, 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 introduction, thank you. Who else was the son of son of son of whatever and where do they live? I don't even know how to say that. Moving on. Don't do that. Okay, that verse, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made is critical, friends. Critical, because it reminds us of three realities that we have to bring into this passage if we're going to understand this passage, okay? First, verse 1 points back to Adam and Eve's God-given mission. Think about that. What, what did God command them to do back in Genesis 1.26? What did he command them? To have dominion over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. What's a creeping thing that creeps on the ground sound like? A snake. They were God's vice regents, right? They were God's representatives. God had built them and commissioned them to rule over the earth on his behalf. They were to rule the world in such a way that would magnify God's glory and enhance and advance human flourishing. That was their job. So what's that tell us about the serpent? That tells us that this is a creature that Adam and Eve are supposed to rule over right? Not a creature that's supposed to rule over them. That's important because that reminds us that that whatever the serpent does in this passage, the man and the woman are never under duress. They're not. They're dealing with a creature whom God himself has already subjected to their authority. Here's here's the second thing verse 1 teaches us that we have to bring into this passage. Verse 1 points to the ultimate face behind every expression of evil in the world. Remember I said earlier that that evil doesn't just exist. It's personal. It it has a, a face to it, starting with our own. But friends, beginning here in, in Genesis 3 and continuing throughout the rest of Scripture, and in every situation in our lives today, that there is another face that presses through every human face of evil. And that's the face of Satan. The evil one. Throughout the Bible, the serpent is a symbol of the devil. So Revelation 12.9 describes, listen, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So Genesis 3.1 doesn't come out and say, Check out the serpent. Hint, hint, it's Satan. (laughs) But if you read it in context, if you read it in light of the whole Bible and and pay attention to the words this serpent is about to speak, it's very clear that Satan is using the serpent. His, His face is pressing through the serpent to bring evil into God's good creation. Here's here's the third thing verse 1 reminds us. And this is really important, really important. Verse 1 points to the sovereign reign and power of God over all evil. You might not have seen that. Wait, where is that visible? Well, we'll look at verse 1. The serpent isn't just what? A beast of the field over which Adam and Eve were supposed to rule. What is the serpent? He was a beast of the field, listen, that the Lord God had made. God made him. And if you read the whole Bible, over and over again, you'll see that that time and time again, it's the fact that God is the creator of all things that points to the assurance of God's sovereign rule over all things. That's connected. And, And there's a mystery here that we have to affirm, even though we'll never fully comprehend. Okay, Satan is the originator of evil. If you would, he's the provocateur par excellence. But nothing the serpent says or does falls outside the supreme rule and authority of the creator. 
So important. God, God allowed evil to intrude into his good world, but in such a way that God is not the cause of evil in the sense that he is in any way personally responsible for evil. We have to hold those things together. As Abraham declares in, in Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He does what is right. He only does what is good. But notice he's not just the creator. He's the sovereign covenant Lord. Look back at verse 1. Notice the way Lord is capitalized in your Bible. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, okay? What, what does that mean? That's because the word for God there isn't just the generic name for God. It's the personal name for God, the covenant name for God, the name by which he revealed himself to his chosen people Israel, to whom this book was originally written. And the fact that God uses his personal covenant name here makes a really loud statement that all of us need to hear, that Israel needed to hear. What's that? Listen, there is no evil that befell Adam and Eve, that befell the people of Israel who first got this book, or friend, that will ever befall you in this life that exists outside the sovereign rule and authority of Almighty God. You won't find it. It doesn't exist. we got to remember that. Every intrusion of evil into our life, into God's good world, starting from the very beginning, that takes place in a mysterious way we do not fully understand, but yet is tremendously comforting under the sovereign rule and control of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That's crucial. You lose verse 1, you lose a lot. You lose a lot. But there's a warning here because it says the serpent is crafty. <laughs> that he's shrewd. He doesn't just come up to Adam and Eve and say, hey, I got an idea. Who feels like sinning today? <laughs> no, he's smarter than that. And his, his craftiness is revealed in the way that he, he tempts Eve by playing to her sinful desires. And, and there's a three-step sequence here that we need to see. So here's the first step. I said we were going to try to understand this process of temptation. Here's step number one. And these are not good things, okay? Many times the points that I'll make in sermon are things you can go home and say, Lord, help me to do that. In today's sermon, it's the exact opposite, okay? This is what we don't want to do that we need God's help to never do. Point number one, doubt God's goodness. Doubt his goodness. Okay, look back at verse one. Second part of this. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, at first glance, that question seems innocent enough. I, I suppose you could give the serpent the benefit of the doubt and say, Oh, you poor serpent, you're just ignorant. You just need educated. You don't really know. But that's not the case, because in reality, he's inviting Eve to do two things here. Two things. Listen very carefully, okay? First, he's inviting her to take a position of judgment over the word of God, instead of remaining in a position of submission under the word of God. Where do we see that? In the setup for the question, did God actually say? It's subtle, but it's real. He's, he's inviting her to take a position of judgment, of evaluation over God's word. He's suggesting it should be tested and assessed and examined by the human mind to determine whether it is sufficiently reasonable, sufficiently rational, so that from the authoritative perspective of the mind of man, we can confirm that that's true. Do you realize that's the exact opposite of what it means to follow God as a creature? We don't, we don't come to God's word, friend, 
evaluating it in the light of human reason, we come to God's word and we subject our reason under it that we might know what in our reason is true and what in our reason is false. It's his perfect word that judges our human reason, not our human reason that judges the perfect word. And vulnerability to sin begins with arrogantly assuming that position of judgment over the word instead of coming with a humble position of submission under the word. Notice in verse 1, the serpent doesn't use God's covenant name. Why not? Because he's not coming into this situation. Satan's not coming into this moment with Eve in a position of submission to God. God is not the serpent's covenant Lord. But judging God isn't the only thing he invites Eve to do. He invites her to assume this position of judgment and then from that position to doubt the goodness of God. I hope you heard that in the way that I I read his words, okay? The, The implicit suggestion in his question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The suggestion to Eve is is that God is being unreasonable, right? God's being stingy. He's not loving or caring. Did, Did he really make all these amazing trees and then tell you just to sit there and not eat them? Wow. Don't you think that's a little harsh, Eve? Well, she appears to take the bait because notice the first thing First thing she says in response in verse 2, look there. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. We'll compare that to what God actually said back in Genesis 2.16. What did God actually say? Did he say you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden? He didn't. He didn't. What did he say? You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. What's what's missing? As Eve corrects the serpent, but, but she fails to affirm something that's absolutely critical. She fails to affirm the lavish generosity of God. She misses that. Friend, the, the very first thing, the first thing that the enemy of your soul would have you do is lose sight of the exceeding goodness of God to you. That's the first thing he's going to try to pick off. Your sight, your awareness of the exceeding goodness of God to you. Listen, God has given you the gift of life. He's given you the gift of his word. He's given you the gift of his very own son. If if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then he has chosen you. He has called you. He has regenerated you. He has justified you. He has sanctified you, adopted you, filled you, empowered you, and will one day glorify you. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the church, the the gift of his presence, the gift of his promises, and, and the list just goes on and on and on. Brother or sister, if you're a Christian, don't tell me God has not been good to you. He's been exceedingly good to you. If if something is not in question on the heels of the picture of paradise in Genesis 2, it's the goodness of God. And though we may doubt it in our lives today, it is never in fact in question because he's a lavishly generous God. But, But what do we do? We doubt that. Right? We lose sight of that. And, and in that moment, When you've lost sight of the goodness of God, friend, you have a choice to make. you got a choice to make, okay? Two directions. You can either, one, join the psalmist in lamenting your pain and sorrow to the Lord and crying out for God's help to see his goodness to you in Jesus Christ once again. Or, or, you can wallow in doubt, linger in unbelief, and nurse a creeping bitterness toward God in the quiet of your heart. Two choices. And then if God withholds the temporal blessings that that we think we deserve, we begin to seriously wonder, well, well, maybe, Lord, gosh, maybe you're not as good as all these other Christian people told me you were cracked up to be. I mean, 
let's just be honest, I'm still broke. I'm still single. None of my kids are following you. Now my body's falling apart. (laughs) Friend, the allure of sinful pleasures grows dim when the eye of faith remains fixed on the ravishing goodness of Almighty God. Grows dim. The allure of sin grows dim when your eye remains fixed on the goodness of the Lord. But, but if you lose sight of God's goodness and, and if you passively allow yourself to sink in the mire of doubting God's goodness, then we become seriously vulnerable to temptation. Seriously vulnerable. Because God hadn't just been good to Eve. He'd been exceedingly good to Eve. And though she corrected the serpent's error, she fell short of affirming the full lavish generosity of God. Can I look back at verse 3? Notice what happens as she begins to question God's goodness. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Question for you. (laughs) Is that what God said? No, no, it's not. God didn't tell Eve to not touch the tree. He simply said to not eat of it. Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So why did Eve add to God's command? Well, she twisted and exaggerated God's command in her own mind until it looked sufficiently unreasonable and stingy that she could feel good about rejecting it. Does that make sense? She twisted and corrupted God's command in her mind so that she could feel really good about saying, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. And that's what happens when we begin to doubt the goodness of God. We, we lose touch with reality. Okay, Initially, it feels like we're just being honest and realistic and authentic about the situation. But truth be told, when you lose sight of the lavish generosity of God, you have lost sight of reality. You're deluded. You're not seeing clearly anymore. It's the goodness of God that is real, and it is exceedingly more real than any of your doubts. So let me give you an example here. This this first step of doubting the goodness of God, okay? What is it that enables a Christian to fall into sexual immorality of, of any sort? What is it? Well, I'll tell you what it almost always involves. It almost always involves creating a harsh, unreasonable caricature, stereotype, of God's law in our mind so that we can feel justified in rejecting it. Why would God create these strong physical desires in me without giving me an outlet? That's crazy. (laughs) Don't touch the tree. Can you believe that? That doesn't even make sense. It's it's not like anyone's going to get hurt if I touch the tree. I mean, we're two consenting adults. God is such a prude. We think like that. And in so doing, we take the first step toward succumbing to temptation to sin. Friend, be honest this morning. Where right now are you prone to doubt the goodness of God? Where are you prone to doubt it? Where are you vulnerable to doubting his goodness in your life? Doubting God's goodness doesn't mean you've fallen into sin. There's a world of difference between doubt and unbelief, okay? But, but as, we conceive, as we conceive with Eve, to surrender to our doubts, instead of fighting our doubts, is to start coasting down the path of temptation and sin. So what do we need to do? We need to share our doubts with another Christian, with one another, brothers and sisters, and help each other fight to trust the goodness of the Lord. 
Okay, the, the first step in the process, the pattern of sin, was doubt God's goodness. Here's the second, okay? Step number two, question God's integrity. Doubt is goodness, question is integrity. Okay, look back at verse three. Right, the first hint that Eve's beginning to question God's integrity is actually found at the end of this verse. What, what, did, what did God say? What did he say? If you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. What does Eve say? She simply says, lest you die. Those are not identical phrases at all in the original language. God's statement is significantly stronger than Eve's statement. What's going on here? That's not just semantics. Eve is weakening in her own mind. She is weakening the promised judgment of God. She's weakening it. Matthew 7, verse 26. Everyone, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Isaiah 30, verse 33, for a burning place has long been prepared. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Friends, the judgment of God is not a joke. It's not a joke. It's it's not something old white preachers rail about to get young teenagers to get in line. It's reality. It's just as real as, as the breath you just took. And if you disobey the word of God by refusing to follow the Son of God, then then know this, you will not have your cake and eat it too. You will be destroyed. You'll be destroyed. God's not kidding here. As we'll see next Sunday in the second half of this chapter, he keeps his entire word to them. His judgment was real. And he'll do it again, friend. So I warn you, do do not allow the fact, do not allow the fact that that life in your world seems to just continue without any ultimate accountability, any ultimate judgment to delude you into minimizing or denying the justice of God. Okay, to the degree you do that, to the degree you say in your mind, God's a loving guy. I'm sure this will all work out in the end. You you are placing your soul in tremendous peril. Because it's not real. It's the judgment of God that's real. And, And if we minimize that, if we lose sight of that, then we lose a significant source of power in resisting temptation to sin. Do you know what that source of power is called? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Jesus did not die to rescue you from the fear of the Lord. Jesus died to free you that you may fear the Lord all the days of your life. Not not a fear that is trembling, thinking, oh no, at any moment I could fail to obey him in some way and I'm just going to get a smackdown. No, but a fear that recognizes God, you are God and I am not. And because of Jesus, you are gracious toward me, but because of Jesus, I had better follow you all the days of my life. The serpent sensed her vulnerability. He, He sensed her confidence in the integrity of God's word was beginning to weaken, so he cuts to the chase. Look at verse 4. Eve, let's just be honest. You will not surely die. Do you realize he actually quotes God more accurately than Eve? He uses God's exact language, but he categorically denies it. He denies his truthfulness. He's not, but he doesn't just deny God's truthfulness. He questions God's motives. He questions God's motives. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's a short verse, but here's what I, I think he's really saying. God's hiding something from you, Eve. He didn't tell you the whole story. You, you thought all this time that, that he told you not to eat from that tree because he was trying to protect you. But guess what? You ready for this? He's simply trying to protect himself. He's, he's trying to control you and, and keep you from reaching your full potential. God, God knows that unless he keeps you in line, unless he holds you back from an experiential knowledge of evil, you're going to become a god in your own right. This, this whole thing, Eve, it's a power play. He doesn't really care about you. He just cares about himself. You want to submit to a God like that? And guess what, Eve? This whole business about being dependent on God to reveal what is true to you, I'm, that's crazy. I mean, if you want to keep living like you're some kind of little kid who just needs everyone else around them to tell them what to do, go for it. But I think you're better than that. I think you're bigger than that. I think you're stronger than that. You don't need to remain dependent on God to tell you what's true. You, you can discover the truth all by yourself. You can know it directly. Wouldn't that be amazing, Eve? You don't need God anymore. You can be God. S Satan is deliberately narrowing the distinction between the creator and the creature to convince Eve that she can cross that barrier with a piece of fruit. I love Francis Schaeffer's comments here. It's a lie, of course, that she's going to be like God because experiential knowledge of evil is not what makes God God. God is God because he is infinite. Amen. The non-dependent one, no created being, will ever be able to be like him in this. But the, but the serpent spins this experiential knowledge of evil as the path of self-fulfillment and freedom. And friends, sin has been promising that to us ever since. Choose me and find self-fulfillment. Choose me and find, find freedom. But it's a bold-faced lie. It's a lie. Because you weren't made to do your own thing. You're a creature. You're not the creator. God made you to need him. God made you to depend on him. You, you need his word to know what is true. So listen to this. He, God hasn't given you his word to hold you back from reaching your full potential. He has given you his word that you might become everything he made you to be. There's not freedom found in deliverance from the word. There's freedom found in the God-given power and ability to obey the word. That's true freedom. That's true fulfillment. And, and here's the sad irony, right? As a human being bearing the image of God, what was Eve already? She was already like God. Already like God. And on one level, the glory and dignity that the serpent offered her was a glory and dignity, listen, she already had. But she lost sight of that. She, she doubted God's goodness. She questioned his integrity. The serpent convinced her God's holding something back. God's more interested in protecting himself than caring for you. And, and by that point, after step one, doubt God's goodness, linger in that. Step two, question God's integrity, linger in that. The serpent never had to say, Hey, so how about we close the deal? How about you take that fruit and eat it? He didn't have to. She was 90% of the way there. <laughs> and so in verse 6, she takes the final step. And we'll conclude with this. She disobeys God's word. 
Doubt God's goodness. Question God's integrity. Disobey God's word. Look look at the simple verb at the beginning of verse 6. So when the woman saw, when the woman saw, Eve exchanged God's instructions for her own impressions. Think about that. She exchanged God's instructions for her own impressions. What God said was true for what appeared to be true. So the the forbidden fruit seemed to me a God-given physical desire. Good for food. I need food. God made me with a need for food. Surely that meets a physical desire and God gave me that desire. So if the desire is good, then something that satisfies it must be good. At least it seems that way to me. It seemed delightful to the eyes. It seemed desirable for making one wise. Only as we've seen, it wasn't actually wisdom. It was folly because it wasn't the fear of the Lord. And our temptations to sin are no different. I mean, let's be honest. We, we opt, whenever we sin, we opt for what seems good, what looks good, what feels good, instead of what the Creator says is good. That's what we're doing. And well does 1 John 2.16 warn us, friend, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, what we see, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, now listen, that doesn't mean that what you desire or what you see is never true. It means that what we see and desire should always be suspect. Example, ever had the moment when you pick up a beautiful, shiny piece of fruit and you think, this thing is going to be amazing, and then you bite into it, and it's just, (laughs) it's rotten to the core. It's like the moment when my wife says, well, give it to me, I can save part of it. I was like, throw it away. what's the point? The point is that what seems to be true, all my senses, feels right, looks right, I'm hungry, that looks like food, isn't always what's true. We have to test our impressions. We have to test our sight, and Eve failed to do that. She took of the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate Lord, help me not preach a second sermon right now. (laughs) Gentlemen, that has to be one of the most sobering statements in this entire passage. Up until that point, we don't know what Adam's doing. But what does that tell us? Look at verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was out working hard doing God's work. No. No. He was standing there. Just standing there the whole time. It was his job to keep and guard the garden. That was Adam's job. He he should have kicked the serpent out. And if the serpent wouldn't get out, he should have taken a shovel and beheaded the thing. (laughs) Crushed it. At a minimum, he should have defended the goodness and integrity of God. But, But he chose the path of passivity. He he chose to to be led instead of leading, instead of resisting, he capitulated. He watched the entire thing go down and he never said a single word. Don't do that, men. Don't you dare do that. What did the serpents say? If you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. What actually happened? They ate, look at verse 7, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They they knew shame. And it was the shame of sin. It it was the shame of, of clear, willful treachery against the command of their creator, whom they had every reason to trust and obey. And they felt it immediately. And they tried to hide their guilt and cover their shame. They they made fig leaf clothing. I mean, it's just the picture of futile, inadequate. 
I noticed that one of the most important ways they image their creator and their maleness and femaleness, their sexuality, that became the focal point of their guilt and corruption. Little did they know at this point in verse 7, all that would go wrong, all we're going to see next week in the last, last half of chapter 3, for them, for their descendants, for the entire created world, because they doubted God's goodness, didn't resist, they questioned God's integrity, and didn't fight back, and then they disobeyed God's word. Friend, the, the story of the fall reminds us that evil always begins in our relationship with God. It always starts in the vertical direction. It, it starts with God. There, there are massive horizontal consequences to sin, but our sin is always first and foremost against the Lord. Why do I say that? Because all sin is the overflow of, in some way, doubting God's goodness, questioning God's integrity. So what's the main point of this passage? Some weeks I give it to you at the beginning. Today I'm going to give it to you at the very end. Here's the main point. This reminds us, this story reminds us that resisting temptation to sin requires vigilant trust in the goodness of God and the truthfulness of God. Successfully resisting temptation to sin requires vigilant trust in the goodness of God and the truthfulness of God. That's what we have to fight for. And I, I don't know every temptation to sin that you're facing right now, every temptation you're going to face this week, but I know this, friend. When temptation comes, you won't get jumped by sin like he's some kind of boogeyman. Bah! How did that happen? Oh, my word. I was just so busy following Jesus, and then he whacked me over the head with a brick. No. No. No, no. There's a pattern. You can see it coming. But God has to open your eyes to recognize what's going down. And he's given us this word to do that. 